Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're going to look at how Congress avoided a government shutdown on September 30th and whether they'll be able to do it again before November 17th when the short-term deal they reach uh, comes to an end. And then uh, beyond that, there's still the overriding question of when and how they'll reach agreement on spending levels for the full fiscal 2024 appropriations bills. So it certainly looks like a bumpy road ahead, uh, particularly in the wake of Kevin McCarthy's tumultuous ouster as Speaker of the House. Uh, And uh, after the shocking attack by Hamas on Israel, we now have a new demand for U.S. military aid on top of the Biden administration's pledge to provide more assistance to Ukraine. So that's an added complication. Uh, And then after we talk about all that in our final segment, we'll look at the latest economic numbers and what they portend for the federal budget. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join me for today's discussion. And so let's get started. Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Hey, Bob. Uh, Tori, I'll begin with you because you were closely following developments as Congress flirted with the uh, end of the fiscal year shutdown. I know that because I was getting regular texts from you as were (laughs) the whole Concord staff, like some sort of Gorman wire service. <laughs> and, uh, Sorry for was, spamming. <laughs> yeah, well, it was very helpful. Uh, so, you know, as the last day of the fiscal year began, uh, it looked like a shutdown was almost certain. And then out of the blue, a bill came together and ended up getting overwhelming bipartisan support in both the House and Senate. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, where do you always start? You always start at the beginning of the week or what yeah, happened start, on Saturday? Well, start with how it came uh, together. Okay. Right? All right. Yeah. So let's, 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 let's look at shutdown week. Okay. So shutdown week was the week of September 25th through the 30th on Monday. Okay. The house Republican leadership tried to rally support for a continuing resolution, which is a, a temporary stop ba- stopgap funding measure for the government um, that had only Republican priorities in it. Um, yeah, things like reduced spending rates, uh, no money for Ukraine. Yeah, it included you know, things like the the House Border Security Bill, et cetera. But they found that they didn't have enough members to support it. Uh, and there were just some members, ultra conservative Republicans in the House, who wanted to fund the government via regular order. They didn't want to do a continuing resolution of any time, any kind. So that meant what they wanted to do was to pass all twelve appropriations bills out of the house. Well, that's impossible to do in a week's time. The house had already done only had done one bill at that time and they needed to do 12. Uh, but leadership pivoted to passing additional appropriations bills with the hope that progress and the pressure of time would attract uh, additional Republican votes closer to the September 30th uh, you know, government shutdown date. 
on. So that's Monday. Okay. They, they tried the house tries to pass a continuing resolution. They can't Um, Tuesday. The Senate realizes we're going to probably have to go first here. The house isn't going to get their act together in enough time. The Senate's going to have to pass a continuing resolution, send it over. Excuse me. The Senate's going to have to pass one and send it over to the house. So the Senate releases a draft of a bipartisan uh, continuing resolution, and it initiates the procedures necessary to vote on the measure. Uh, Democrats control the the Senate. So Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, he attempts to try to pass the bill quickly. But in order to do that, you need unanimous consent in the Senate. In order to bypass the filibuster rule and stuff like that, you have to get unanimous consent, which literally means all senators, all 100 senators have to agree to move forward and yes, we want to vote on this right now. And as you always know, there's always a skunk at the party, right? In the Senate. So yeah, we had two, at least two that we know of. I'm sure there were other members that were opposing, but there were two senators who were objecting to putting this continuing resolution on fast track. Uh, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin and Rand Paul from, from Kentucky for various different reasons. You know, Ron Johnson wanted to vote on different legislation. Rand Paul objected to having any money for Ukraine in the Senate's bipartisan continuing resolution. So and just to point out, those two have a history of doing this sort of thing, <laughs> using their yeah. leverage to. Yes. to yeah. Which is which is my big ding uh, yeah, on on Majority Leader Schumer. He should know that he's going to have problems from off flank, whether it's right or left flank. And he should have started this process a lot earlier than he than he did so that he wouldn't need unanimous consent. But let's shelve that for a different day. <laughs> okay. So top line, end of the day, Tuesday, Senate figured out, oh, it's going to take us several days to get this CR done. It's probably going to take us until Saturday, September 30th, which is the end of the fiscal year. And when, oh, my gosh, we got to get this done to avoid a shutdown. For the rest of the week, you know, Tuesday through Friday, the Senate's going through the motions it needs to go through to get its bipartisan continuing resolution through the Senate. The House is voting on appropriations bills and talking about a continuing resolution, and everybody's doing the big shutdown convulsion. Will they, won't they, will they, won't they? On Friday, Speaker McCarthy puts the the House Republican continuing resolution back on the floor. He's figured, you know, we've we've passed, you know, three appropriations bills this week. You know, the, the shutdown deadline's coming. Let's try this again. Let's try this experiment again. And shockingly, the rule, which is the procedural vote, uh, that that brings up the House continuing resolution, it passes. And he's like, great, we are on a glide path to getting this continuing resolution out of the House and sending it over to the Senate. But a funny thing happens when the actual uh, continuing resolution comes up, it goes down. <laughs> there is not enough Republican support. I mean, Democrats obviously aren't going to support this. They hate, you know, 99% of what's in it. Uh, so it's like, wait a minute, the rule passed, but then they had uh, a number of House Republicans that said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you bring it up for a vote, but I'm not going to vote for it. That, that almost seems deliberately insulting. Like, mm-hmm. I- I'll let you bring this vote up just so we can kill it. I mean, mm-hmm. from his own party. Exactly. A small exactly. group of his own party. Uh, so, you know, Kevin McCarthy goes home, starts banging his head on the wall, <laughs> cursing names. Um, and so Saturday morning wakes up. And Speaker McCarthy introduces out of the blue, a basically a clean or what I call a pragmatic continuing resolution. And he puts it on the House suspension calendar. Very strategic move, because that means he can bring it up right away without needing a vote on a rule. Um, but it means it means he needs two thirds of the members present and voting to support it. So he's, he would need 
a lot of Democratic help to get this across the the, the floor. Um, Senate Republicans, in the meantime, catch wind of this and they stall votes in the Senate. They want to give the House time to act. Um, and it looks like everybody's sort of scratching their heads saying, why would McCarthy do this? Why at the last minute would he throw a clean CR on the House floor? Um, and I think that the 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 talking points that he used that day and the way that he went about processing this CR, for example, not giving Democrats enough time to read the measure, you know, putting up for a vote or what I think McCarthy thought that Democrats would oppose that clean continuing resolution. And he could then blame them, Democrats, for shutting down the government, which would take the focus off of Republicans for, you know, being completely inept and not getting any legislation through the House. But in a surprise twist to McCarthy, again, twist number two, okay, twist number one was the day before the rule passed on their CR, but the bill failed. Okay, twist number two, he expects this CR to fail, but guess what? It passes by an overwhelming margin. I mean, all Democrats support it and 190 House Republicans support it as well. So he's like, oh, crap, the dog caught the car kind of thing. And so that <laughs> it passes, the CR passes, it goes chugging over to the Senate. The Senate passes it. They send it to the president. He signs it, you know, literally, I think, minutes to spare before the funding deadline at midnight on September 30th, Saturday. So that's the way this whole thing panned out. And then, of course, over the weekend, there were all these recriminations that, oh, my gosh, McCarthy was the big boy in the room. He put a forward a clean CR, but it had more support from Democrats than it did from Republicans, even though a majority of Republicans supported it. So the majority of the majority rule, right? The, is this the Hastert rule, right? You don't put anything on the floor that the majority of the majority does not support. OK, well, he cleared that hurdle, right? He had 190 of his 200 and some odd uh, 218. I can't remember how many Republicans are, but in the house, 220 or something, something. Yeah. Okay. So he had like 190 of his Republicans on board, which is more than a, than half, you know, the majority of, of his caucus. And then all of the, the Democrats supported it. And for some reason, uh, eight Republicans thought that was a good reason to toss McCarthy out of the speakership, take away his gavel. So on Monday morning, we came back and there was a discussions of a motion to vacate the speaker's chair. And we all know what happened there on Tuesday. Republican Congressman Matt Gates uh, made his motion and the motion to table the motion to vacate failed and the motion to vacate passed. All Democrats and eight uh, Republicans supported it. So boom, now we have a, a house with no speaker, but we do have a continuing resolution. Uh, we are, uh, the government stayed open. It'll stay open until November 17th, which doesn't seem very far away at that at this point. Um, no, and we'll have to uh, pick this up on the <laughs> other side of the break. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the short-term funding deal that Congress reached to avoid a shutdown and how much work remains to be done. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the short-term funding deal that Congress reached to avoid a shutdown and how much work uh, remains to be done. Uh, so, Tori, when we left off... Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, a surprising continuing resolution or CR had been passed to avoid a shutdown at the end of the fiscal year. Mm -hmm. uh, 
during the wee hours of September 30th, before the calendar, uh, the fiscal year turned. So crisis avoided, but uh, they really didn't avoid it for very long. And uh, let's put this in context here. What, what did they really, how much funding did they actually achieve for how long? And, you know, what do they need? What's you, left? You, what what's you, remains to be phrase. done? You've heard the phrase kicking the can down the road. Well, the House managed to, or the, I should say Congress, and it's not just the House, but they managed to kick the can down the block. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we've got another funding deadline staring at us uh, November 17th. But I, I think there are, are, there are, you know, there are four key issues right now as, as it pertains to, to the House. Number one, top priority, they got to fill the Speaker of the House. Okay, they have a Speaker pro tem right now, but it, but it's not an elected position. And the person in that position that that, that is, is very truncated in terms of what they can do. They, they can't, they, I think they've determined, I mean, even though this is like the first time this has ever happened, um, they've pretty much deduced from the way the rules are written that this Speaker pro tem can't move legislation, can't revert, refer legislation to committees, can't move legislation. So number one thing, you got to get that Speaker's slot filled. And you know, House Republicans will meet this week. Hopefully they'll they'll select a speaker this week and we'll be moving forward on other priorities. But who knows? There are some people who think this could go on forever. Beyond that, we've got to figure out funding for Ukraine and Israel. OK, both are you know top, top, top priorities right now. The House and the Senate have got to be able to move legislation quickly. And I don't know what those packages will look like. I don't know how they get them across the, the 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 two chambers specifically out of the house, but that's an issue. Third priority, continuing resolution. November 17th is going to be on us, you know, quicker than you can snap your fingers. So they've got to figure out. And I think getting a continuing resolution out of the house this time is going to be harder than it was last two weeks ago. So, you know, odds of a shutdown, I think, in my opinion, are growing. And then we got to fund the government. Fourth priority, we got to pass the 12 appropriations bills, whether it's in a series of smaller, you know, mini bus bills, whether it's each bill on a standalone basis, or whether it's a Christmas tree omnibus, you know, with 12 pill bills, spending bills jammed into one big giant piece of legislation. I have no idea, but we got to fund the government. So those are sort of the four things, the four priorities in order of priority that I see have got to get done. Do you think that, uh, it's likely that when we get to September, uh, November 17th that they'll kick the can down the road again or down the down the block, uh, maybe just till like December 23rd or something yeah. like that to give themselves a deadline. So I think there is an outside chance that assuming, you know, the speaker's race is decided quickly, it's quite possibly possible for one or two non-controversial appropriation bills to pass before November 17th, which would mean, yes, we'd need another continuing resolution, but maybe not one for the entire government. And I say maybe. There's still this big discrepancy between the Senate and the House as to what the funding levels should be for fiscal year 2024. So, um, you know, that's an outside chance that we might have one or two non-controversial bills enacted, appropriations bills enacted before that deadline. But we're going to need another continuing re resolution on November 17th. There's no way that the House and the Senate can iron out the details of all 12 appropriations bills uh, before the November 17th deadline. It's just not possible. Yeah, because as we've mentioned before, there the House and Senate are working from different numbers. The Senate is working at the at the Biden McCarthy deal, and the House is working at a lower deal. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, no. I, the Senate hasn't passed a single appropriations bill yet. It's not even in this week. Okay. The Senate's in recess. And of course, the House is all consumed with speaker race. So mm-hmm. I just, you know, even if they could start, uh, you know, hit the ground running next week on appropriations bills, you know, that still leaves them, what, three weeks to get all 12, you know, adjudicated and sent to the president before November 17th. I just I don't see that happening. Yeah. One other thing that you mentioned uh, is, you know, foreign assistance aid to Ukraine was already a controversial had become a controversial issue. And now we have uh, calls for aid to Israel. uh, And, you know, we're in the very early stages of that 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 attack and and you know we certainly don't know where that's headed uh but it seems like the united states will probably uh, need to provide some assistance um do you see that maybe a foreign aid package moving separately maybe combined with a border security package I'd like to think that uh, calmer heads will prevail in both chambers and everyone will agree that some sort of compromise will be necessary. But, you know, I've seen things like this fail before because lawmakers need the failures to run for re-election. They need campaign points, right? They need attack talking points. And if everybody comes together, holds hands to sing Kumbaya and past passes things on a bipartisan basis, then suddenly those talking points uh, for attacking your opponent go out the door. So I would be interested to see if policy trumps politics in this case. It's very much what I hope. Um, I'd like to think that support for Ukraine and support for Israel are nonpartisan, but we'll see. There's almost almost nothing that's uh, nonpartisan. I've and I think Republicans have a good point about the border. Okay, we, we've got a serious problem at the border. I mean, when places like Democratic strongholds like New York City are saying, um, "Excuse me, Mr. President, you need to do something about the border," you need to do something about the border. So, yeah. um, I would One, like to uh, just to, to, to before I go to Steve with a cosmic question. Um, <laughs> I've got a get ready, Steve. Um, you know, this is what strikes me is the, 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 the dilemma here is that twice this year, McCarthy demonstrated, whether inadvertently or not, that he needed Democratic votes to get the debt limit deal done and the uh, shutdown avoidance deal done, the CR. And so the lesson seems to be that in a closely divided House with a Democratic Senate and Democratic president, you do need to have bipartisan cooperation to get something big through. And yet the fact that he was ousted for doing it mm-hmm. seems to make it almost impossible now for a new Republican speaker to pass something that would have Democratic votes. And mm-hmm. I I just don't know how you end that dilemma. Well, I have to say, if, if Nancy Pelosi was still speaker, She'd go into her conference and she start banging heads together. I mean, she I mean, I'm, I she, she, the woman I don't know how she do it, did it, but she knew how to twist arms and really make you feel pain. Um, so, you know, who in the Republican Party can do that? You know, who can come in and start banging some heads together and saying, 
fall in line, get your act together, stop performing, you know, for the, for the camera, stop performing for, you know, your, your partisan constituents back home. You know, we're here to lead and solve problems. Let's get this done. Who is that personality in the Republican ranks? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would. I would have thought, you know, maybe Liz Cheney. But guess what? She's not in the yeah, house anymore. <laughs> not her. Steve, I've got a question in light of all of this. You've been in, uh, on Capitol Hill in the budget process for years. People say that the budget process is dysfunctional or broken or whatever. Is it the process that's broken or do we have dysfunctional people trying to carry out the process? Well, um, probably the latter. I mean, you know, the, the, the modern budget processes that exist today was largely created by the 74 Budget Act. So, I mean, we've been operating under these, these rules essentially for, you know, going on, I guess, going on 50 years. And it, it certainly seemed to work better previously. Um, and certainly when I started on the Hill back in 85, it, it still seemed to work okay most of the time then. So I, I think really the, the 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 significant deterioration that we've seen, I think, is is more of a, of a recent phenomenon. And, you know, I, I think you just have to look at the, the increased polarization of the country um, has led to the polarization of the Congress. And, and instead of looking at how you can work across the aisle, both parties are convinced that, you know, if they can just get one more election behind them, that, that they'll have enough control of the majority to 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 get what they want. But, you know, I, I don't think the public's there. I mean, we have a divided Congress and we've had continually, you know, um, the, the, the White House has continued to go from one party to the other. And so, you know, it just it doesn't seem like the, uh, you know, neither party is going to gain sufficient majorities in all the Congress and the White House to get their way. And if you can't get your way, you've got to compromise if you want the government to keep running. So and you don't want to compromise. So just stamp your feet. And uh, I don't know how we. Well, anyway, that's we'll keep asking that question. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Corey Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking about the short-term funding deal that uh, Congress enacted to avoid a shutdown and uh, what they have left on their agenda. And it's quite a bit. You know, I just want to begin with a little bit of a rant of my own, Um, uh, (laughs) taking the host uh, uh, prerogative to uh, issue a rant, you know, I'm not a fan of the debt ceiling. Uh, and, you know, we talked about this a lot in the uh, spring about the debt ceiling deal and uh, using the debt li- limit for leverage and the dangers of doing that. And one of the arguments in favor of the debt limit deal, aside from avoiding a default, which is the main reason for doing it. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but one of the reasons that the Biden administration said, well, it was OK to negotiate over the debt limit, uh, and, and they weren't really changing their position, they were really negotiating over the budget, was they reached this deal with uh, Kevin McCarthy, then Speaker of the House, that was supposed to avoid this very kind of shutdown showdown 
that we frequently have and that would otherwise be projected for this year. So back in the spring, there was hope and expectation. An explicit goal of the debt ceiling deal was to avoid a shutdown because they agreed to numbers and they agreed to a process that would actually uh, require sequestration, which is a big cut sometime later next year, if they failed to, or if they kept operating on a so-called CR and failed to pass the annual appropriations bill. So they thought, okay, we've agreed to a number and we've agreed to a process to enforce that number. So this is great. Uh, See, it's okay to negotiate over the debt ceiling because we get so much out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, really got nothing out of it. Aside from, as I said, aside from avoiding the, the default, which is, you know, that funny the, thing happened on deal. the way to the forum. <laughs> so here we are. And it turned out that not everyone was on board on the uh, on those numbers. And, uh, you know, we're having this leverage. They could have done this anyway. I mean, they could have. Without using putting the nation's creditworthiness at risk, if you want to have a knockdown drag out fight over appropriations and shut something down, you can do that. At the end of the fiscal year, you don't need the debt ceiling to try to enforce what is essentially nothing more than appropriations deal. So that business about putting the nation's creditworthiness at risk was um, basically all for naught. And uh, Again, to me, is another reason why we we need to come up with some other mechanism for dealing with the debt ceiling uh, or eliminating altogether, which I realize is not a politically feasible thing to do. But if, if people think we're getting a lot out of negotiating over the debt ceiling, this year's example. Exhibit uh, A, why we don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Anyway, just a little thought that we'll revisit again when the debt ceiling comes back to life like Frankenstein's monster. It's in suspension right now, but uh, come January 2025, we'll be uh, worrying about this again. Mm -hmm. So now another thing that fallout from all the machinations that Tori has described is, you know, one of the interesting things and encouraging thing about Speaker McCarthy's original CR, or maybe it wasn't the original, but it was the second CR, the one that went down in flames. One of the positive aspects of that was that there was a bipartisan fiscal commission attached to that, and it had bipartisan sponsorship. And it looked like, frankly, it looked to me like the sort of thing that might pass because it's like a good government thing. It wasn't a big concession that uh, the Democrats in the Senate would have to make to include that. And, uh, you know, I, I had some some hope for that fiscal commission. But I wondered, uh, you know, it because it went down in a because it was attached to a CR that had an ignominious uh, <laughs> ending. Mm-hmm. I I I wonder, you know, where that proposal stands. I don't know, Tori. Uh, what 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 are your thoughts about a bipartisan fiscal commission surviving this process? I I, I think it, there's a possibility. Um, I would see it more towards a an end of year sort of. Uh, I mean, <laughs> between now and Christmas, 
we're going to close out fiscal year 2023. We're going to see how big the deficit is. It's going to be ginormous. Um, members are going to want to, you know, spend big on appropriations this year. They might throw in a tax bill this year or next year. And in order to give themselves cover for doing so, I could see them supporting a fiscal commission bill, you know, as sort of a rider on an omnibus, for example, because it gives them political cover to say, yeah, I voted for this big spending package, but I also voted for this fiscal commission. So, yeah. What do you I, think? I see it as possible. It's, it's possible. Yeah. What do you think, Steve? You've, you've certainly been around the block on this a time or two. Yeah, well, I, there's certainly no evidence that McCarthy's CR was defeated because it included the fiscal commission. I think that was, you know, that that wasn't an issue of contention. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, after, in fact, after the debt ceiling bill in the spring, uh, McCarthy floated the idea of a commission, and then this is the the manifestation of that, you know, coming coming forth now. So, you know, I, I think there is support for passing, or, or I should say, enacting, creating a fiscal commission. But, you know, as we've seen in the past, if a, if, if a fiscal commission gets created and they do their job recommending the kinds of changes that would be necessary to, you know, adequately address our, you know, rising debt and deficits, the problem then is, can you get a consensus on, on actually passing or enacting anything mm -hmm. that the commission has proposed? And that I see is the real, you know, that's the real dilemma because I mean, you know, we, we've been here before. I mean, we, the last couple of fiscal commissions that, that were created, the last one under president Obama, you know, I mean, they had the commission, they came up with the recommendations and the Congress basically said, no, not, not going there. And that's, that's the problem is, you know, to, to fully address the problem, you're going to have to do things that are not popular and, you know, no, as a, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I mean, no politician runs for office saying, vote for me and I'll raise your taxes and cut your Social Security and Medicare benefits. I mean, that's just not a winning political strategy or, or slogan. And unfortunately, those are the kind of things you have to do. And I just don't see the stomach uh, there yet to do those things. Well, I should point out that uh, the Concord Coalition is co-chaired by Bob Carey and Jack Danforth, who uh, those with long memories will recall, co-chaired the Carey-Danforth Commission in 1994-95 that uh, tried to tackle all these uh, things, a commission appointed by President Clinton, but they could get no consensus on solutions. So sort of to underscore your, your point, uh, Steve, well, um, we've got some other deadlines coming up. Uh, or at least uh, action action events coming up. And, uh, you know, one of them at the end of October, beginning of November, is uh, is the next Fed meeting. I think I think they're actually meeting on Halloween. <laughs> um, but what, what, in any event, uh, uh, they're going to have to decide what to do with interest rates, as they always do. And we've had some interesting economic numbers coming out recently, uh, including a very hot jobs report for uh, the month of September. Um, Steve, what do you think? I mean, is uh, we're going to spend the next section on this, too. Uh, but I just wanted to, 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 to tee it up here is, you know, the 336,000 jobs in, in October, I mean, in September, more than 200, the 227,000. 
in, in August. So if the Fed has been trying to tamp down um, the economy, it's not showing up yet in the jobs numbers. And uh, I, do you think in a minute or so that we have left in this segment, is the economy too hot, too cold or just about right? <laughs> oh, that is the question. Um, you know, it, it's certainly it makes the Fed's job a little more complicated. I mean, you know, they've been pushing uh, for this, you know, proverbial soft landing. They've been raising interest rates and then they pause and they raise interest rates. And, you know, so they're trying to figure out, OK, what's the right what's the, you know, the, the right point in which we can contain inflation without tanking the economy. And certainly from the economy's perspective, at least right now, I mean, you know, we've got two last quarter GDP numbers, you know, we got 2%, just over 2% real growth. Um, you know, unemployment is still low. Um, job growth came in way above what was expected by the, you know, sort of the consensus uh, opinion prior to the release of the data. And so, you know, it looks like the economy is doing fine. And so the Fed is saying, well, okay, do we, do we take that as good news that we're going to have a soft landing or do we take news as the economy is still too hot and to contain inflation, we're going to have to raise interest rates again? Um, you know, it, like you say, they'll be meeting in uh, early November to make that decision. And it's not clear, you know, we'll, we will get another uh, inflation report um, this actually this week. So they'll have some more information before they make a decision. But you know, it, it's a bit of a of, of a cloudy, a cloudy yeah, well, horizon, uh, a, trying to figure out what's what's going to happen. A cloudy crystal ball. We'll try to clear it up in our final segment. Uh, we'll be right back after these short messages. You're listening to Facing the Future. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the short-term funding deal that uh, Congress reached to avoid a shutdown. We're also discussing the latest developments in the economy. And uh, Steve, when we left off, you were talking a little bit about some of the challenges coming up for the Federal Reserve as they decide whether or not they want to raise interest rates again. Uh, you've been looking closely at the inflation numbers. What do you see? Yeah, so as I was saying before, the, uh, the the CPI, what's called the Consumer Price Index, those numbers will the latest numbers will be coming out this week. Um, and of course, now the Fed actually has a different measure of inflation. They they use what's called the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, which is you know to to, to draw a real quick distinction between the two. So the CPI is a survey of households, and it's actually called the CPIU which means you for urban. And what they do is they survey consumers living in urban areas and they ask them about the prices that they pay. And so essentially uh, the CPI <clears throat> is a consumer measure or household measure. And a couple of differences, it, it includes household consumption. So for example, health expenditures, it measures your out-of-pocket expenditures. So your co-pays and your deductibles uh, to, to distinguish but the, the personal consumption expenditure, which is the Fed's measure, that's actually a business survey. So they ask businesses, what prices do they charge? Now, in theory, the prices consumers pay and the prices the businesses charge should be the same. And in fact, the, the two measures are fairly comparable. But for example, there's another difference on healthcare because they're asking businesses about healthcare. 
they don't include business. Well, they do include business out of pocket, but it's called something else. It's called the employer provided health insurance. So it's the cost to employers of providing health insurance to the employees. And of course, the big difference between the two is what they call their market basket update. And so essentially, the CPI has a fixed market basket, which means what's the mix of goods that they measure the prices of. And that stays chain, uh, stays fixed for a certain period of time. They usually change it, I think, every year. The personal consumption expenditure index is what they call it. Uh, uh, um, they, they have a more frequent market basket update. So the, the popular example is uh, the price of chicken goes up, the price, price of beef goes down. Well, how does that measure in your market basket? Well, if you conclude equal weights of chicken and beef, then the, then the price changes depend solely on the change in price. But if you assume consumers switch away from the cheaper good, I'm sorry, they, they switch toward the cheaper good and away from the more expensive good, you get a change in the market basket, which affects the weighting of the price change. And so historically, the, the, the personal consumption expenditure index has been three to four tenths of a percent less than the CPI. So the CPI tends to grow a little faster. The personal consumption expenditure grows a little slower because of the market basket update. That's largely the biggest difference uh, in terms of, of the rates of change. But I want to back up a second. So as, as folks may recall, both measures of inflation peaked last year. So in June of 2022, the CPI was just over 9%. And in June of 2022, the personal consumption expenditure was just over 7%. So since last summer, June of last year, uh, those have all come down. So as of June of 2023, June of this year, those rates were both almost at 3%, 3% for CPI, 3.2% uh, for, for the PCE. So we've made a lot of progress in bringing inflation down. Unfortunately, since June of this year, those numbers have been moving sideways and in fact, they ticked up in the most recent month, the most recent measure in August. Uh, we were back up at uh, 3.7 and 3.5. And so that's what's really giving the Fed pause is that the progress that we've made on the inflation front since last year has been phenomenal from nine and seven down to three. But since June of this summer, the, 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 the improvement really hasn't, you know, we, we haven't seen continued progress. And, and of course, the, the numbers this week will tell us whether we're still moving sideways or whether we've moved, you know, we're, we're moving back upward. More troublesome, of course, is what's going on in the Middle East. If that spreads or continues, obviously the Middle East is a big source of oil. Oil and energy prices are a big component of the CPI and the personal consumption expenditure. So, you know, we could see some problems there pushing inflation back in the wrong direction. Despite the fact that, that you know the housing market has cooled somewhat since the summer, and inflation, I'm sorry, and interest rates, mortgage rates should be rising, which they are, which should further cool the housing market. But you know, the housing market is one of those weird things where home prices are not directly measured in the CPI. Instead, what they have is what's called rental equivalent. So they take the home prices, that gets translated into what would you rent your house for if you were renting it instead of buying it. That statistical, you know, transition or, or, or uh, transformation from prices to rental equivalent takes place with a lag. So, you know, the higher home prices from the summer are still showing up in the rental equivalent. So it's not clear really which, dura which direction the, the CPI and the other measures of inflation are going to go for the rest of this year uh, because of these uncertainties, both with the Middle East and with housing prices. So, 
you know, what the Fed does with all of this is, you know, remains to be seen, but they're, they're going to have to just wait and see as the data comes in. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's certainly not an obvious call here, uh, particularly with those inflation numbers. You do have, uh, you know, steady, slow but steady wage growth, which uh, seems to be a good thing. I mean, wage growth is always a good thing, but it, it, and it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be growing at a rate that would bother anybody in terms of is the economy too hot? Yeah, wait, wages are coming in at a little over 4% and inflation's a little over 3 So that implies real wage growth of one, which is normally what we consider sort of the productivity component. And so those are, those are in the range of what we would expect and would hope for. But you know, that, yeah, that, I think I, I think that the, of course the Fed. Nobody knows uh, the fallout from the uh, Middle East situation because we're just entering into that, and whether or not there's any interaction between that and the situation in Ukraine, whether Russia sees an opportunity because the U.S. will be distracted elsewhere. Uh, certainly, it, it it seems like it would uh, give uh, Putin no indi- uh, no. Uh, incentive to uh, to let up at, at, at this point. And, you know, you wonder what that does to food prices again, or, you know, food and oil. I mean, the two things that, uh, you know, that people worry about here in the United States on inflation uh, and the situation in Ukraine affects food prices and the situation in the Middle East and in, in, uh, affects oil prices. So I got to think that there, there's some people in the Biden administration that are uh, sweating that out a little bit um, as you play things forward. Uh, another thing that's uh, getting people's attention is uh, rising interest rates. And, uh, you know, one of the phenomenon that we have talked about for many years here at the Concord Coalition is, you know, there's a vulnerability in running up so much debt as we have over the past uh, 23 years or so that, uh, you know, there's a cost of servicing that debt. And surprisingly, that cost has been very restrained because interest rates have been much lower than expected. And so people have said, well, gee, I mean, uh, you know, uh, you keep saying that this is a problem, but uh, the interest costs are the the same as they were even when we had a lower debt because we've got uh, such a low interest rates. Well, that certainly has been changing. Uh, you know, recently mm-hmm. and uh, particularly very recently, as interest rates are moving back up to the highest level in about twenty years, and that has some uh, deep uh, uh, repercussions for the budget. So, uh, Tori and Steve, what do you think? I mean, is this uh, is this showing that the uh, you know deficits really do matter? And uh, and if so, what is the consequence for the federal budget? I think the measure, the, the message here is that, you know, when the Federal Reserve is is artificially keeping interest rates low, you know, uh, you know, debt is not a problem. But when the Fed decides to exit, you know, quantitative easing becomes quantitative tightening. Fed's no longer buying uh, government securities. Other countries are no longer buying Treasury securities. Yeah, there, there's there's a cost to our debt. Surprise, so surprise. Yeah. Uh, uh, free money can mask a lot of problems. And we're starting to see those problems right now. Just to put it into context, I mean, I, I'll, I'll do some math here. So, you know, 30 trillion in public debt at 2% interest rates is 600 billion a year in interest cost. Well, 30 trillion in debt, if, if interest costs go up to 5% instead of 2%, that's one and a half trillion in annual interest cost. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> more than, you know, more than we spend on pretty much anything. I mean, we're spending 1.2 trillion on social security. If we spend one and a half trillion on the national debt on interest cost, 
it, it's you're talking about some pain and heartburn. Eventually, Congress can't sustain those sorts of interest rates, that sort of interest cost. I mean, it would just you know the compound effect on the budget is just it becomes you know prohibitive. Well, and it doesn't yeah, stop I mean, there too, right? I mean, that that they, they, we talk about interest rate crowding out. When we talk about government, you know, you learn this in e- economics one hundred and one. You know, as the government borrows, 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 it pushes up interest rates. You know, that moment we're finally seeing it. You know, but those interest rates affect the private market too. You know, corporations can't borrow money as much to be able to grow, and it affects consumers. And so, you know, next thing you know, not only do we have high interest interest costs for government, we may actually be looking at a recession that the Federal Reserve has been trying so hard to avoid. Uh, we will no doubt be following this story very closely in the uh, coming weeks. And uh, next week, I hope that we'll be able to report what the end of the year fiscal deficit was in uh, fiscal year 2023. So stay tuned for that. For now, this is your host, Bob Bixby. I want to thank uh, Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson for joining me on this week's edition of Facing the Future. And join us again next week when we'll all be back with another edition of Facing the Future. 